welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivikarnak. I'm still Cristiana Figueres. And I'm always Paul Dickinson. This week, we do a mop-up from what happened at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh with issues covering loss and damage, 1.5 degrees, fossil fuel language in the text. Plus, we speak to Rory Stewart, former Minister for International Development of the UK and host of the hit podcast, The Rest is Politics. Plus, we have music from L.A. Salami with a very appropriate song title. Thanks for being here. Okay, so this is the f- third time I think we've covered off what's been going on at COP, but this is the wrap-up episode. Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, the COP finished, I think it was the second longest ever COP. It finished sometime in sun- on Sunday morning after sort of 36 3 hours. 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Yeah. after all of this. 3 a.m. followed by lots and lots of country statements. Um there were so many photos of Jennifer Morgan asleep in, in all the n- global news. I've never seen a sort of celebrity for being asleep, the German but, climate change negotiator. And we should clarify, she wasn't asleep most of the time. She achieved an enormous amount. Maybe we'll cover that. But where should we start? Yeah. There's so much yeah. to talk about. There were few women, <laughs> in fact, few people who worked as hard yeah. as Jennifer and After her children. After that slur from Paul Dickinson. I yeah. was not suggesting <laughs> that her sleep was anything but richly deserved, just simply that okay, it was okay, much okay, recorded. Okay. <laughs> right. Let's start with what they achieved. So loss and damage. This is an issue uh, we covered over the last course of the last couple of weeks, but now we know the final form that you were very familiar with when you were running the UNFCCC and for many years prior, Christiana. This is not a new issue, but there is a new development in the negotiations. So should we start with that? What do you feel about where we landed on loss and damage? Oh, well, that wasn't the question that I was expecting, Tom. But I can <laughs> tell me the question you wanted, and I, and I shall, no, I shall okay. answer. Tom will answer. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Um, well, in general, I think, as usual, uh, a very mixed bag of some positive results, some disappointing results. Uh, as as with every other cop, it's you know not not novel to the cops. Which is sad because we are at the point in which we should only be getting good news out of the cops, but um, yeah. but certainly a very very mixed bag. So on the bright side, I would put two things. I think on the bright side, one is that they agreed to mark my words to create a fund for loss and damage. Hence, we're now going to be seeing a multi-year process of creation. Right. So let's not think this is, you know, Sunday to Monday kind of. Uh, and creation uh, includes small questions like how much money and who gets what and things like that, right? Well, who, who's, who's going to put the money in? And yeah. in fact, even who's going to be eligible to get any support? Yeah. So the, the ins and outs of those financial flows have not been um, not been hashed out. And um, I, I must say the fact that after so many years, I just... I just honestly cannot remember how many years this loss and damage thing has been, at least 10, at least 10 years that loss and damage has been on the agenda. So the fact that finally we got some movement on it, although it still is an an agreement to create a fund. But interesting to note that the final handbrake to that agreement was the United States. Mm-hmm. They were just incredibly resistant to uh, something like this. And one of the major concerns that they had is they didn't want China to be a recipient of any possible funds. They want China to be a payer in, a funder 
of this fund and not a recipient. And that, of course, must have held John Kerry and Minister Xi Jinping up very late at night because despite the fact that, as we mentioned, the two presidents got together and decided, yes, we're going to um, work on this together. But that is really a major, major shift, not just for the two of them, but it is a major shift in one of the major pillars of the climate convention, which is who carries the historical responsibility and hence who should pay. And so if China begins to put money into this, that would be a huge, huge geopolitical strategic shift between the United States and China, unknown at this point. But that is the reason why it was so, so difficult at the end, because it's not just about the fund. It is about what is the historical slash future position of China in um, in climate change. So, um a little step forward. And just, just one moment, just one word on that. I mean, from an outside perspective, you say, well, those who pollute should pay into the fund. But the argument here is that China does not have historical responsibility because they developed relatively recently. And the UN has always seen them on the developing country side of this equation. So they've always received money. And what we're talking about is them shifting from one side of that aisle to the other, right? Yeah. And, and perhaps just to understand that further, it's 1990 is the year in which, you know, you are either have historical responsibility or not. So those that were substantially emitting before 1990 are the industrialized countries. China did not start to substantially emit after, until after that date. And so um, so that is why China is still considered, although it is one of the two major emitters, it is definitely still considered not to have historical responsibility, but certainly assuming more and more future responsibility. Okay, so that's one of your good things. You wanted, you were, you were, you were going through a list oh, of Oh, yes, there is a second yeah. good thing. Thank okay, you for reminding yeah. me. So, um, again, thanks to a brilliant woman, uh, Prime Minister Mir Motley from Barbados, um, who really carried the flag on what on earth are multilateral institutions doing or rather not doing? The whole Bretton Woods institutional structure that was built for a post-war reality and continues to operate as though that were the reality. She has been, you know, banging on the drum that that reality is no longer. It should not operate as the major um, strategic purpose of uh, the World Bank and the other multilateral development banks, and that there is an urgent reform needed. Now, let's remember that the UNFCCC does not dictate what happens at the Bretton Woods institutions, and this would definitely have to be and is already a discussion inside of the World Bank and the other multilateral development banks. But the fact that there is a call from the UNFCCC in a COP decision to uh, to undertake reforms is actually pretty gutsy, Big right? Deal. Pretty gutsy. Yeah. yeah. Those are my two highlights. What about you I like guys? it. They're lovely. They're, they're super. I'm, I'm just like a small point, which is I think um, it was just amazing that the US and China managed to kind of find a way to put their differences to one side and say that we're going to collaborate on climate change. And the reason that's incredibly important is – if you think back things to, to things like this $100 billion a year pledge that's never been fulfilled, you know, why has it not been fulfilled? Well, there isn't a world government, right? But we kind of do need an emergency committee of the world's governments to start making things happen. 
And if the US and China stand together, the two largest economies in the world, that offers real hope uh, for a consensus to build that everyone can pull everyone along. So that's my little way of observing how exciting this is, particularly around redesigning these Bretton Woods institutions. So yeah, we, we I think it, it's a time of replenishment for the UNFCCC system, I hope. Yeah. It is interesting though, isn't it? I mean, there is an inconsistency in the US position here in the sense that they are pushing hard for a reconfiguration of the UNFCCC in the sense that some countries are now very different to who they were in 1990. They need, like China now needs to pay into these funds rather than receive it to make it more relevant for today. But as you said, Christiana, all of the Bretton Woods institutions are sort of frozen in the 1940s. Look at the composition of the Security Council. Look at the fact that the US always gets to choose the CEO of the World Bank. All these other different institutions are historically skewed towards developed country structures. And interestingly, if we're going to crack open at the UNFCCC, who pays and who receives money from this loss and damage fund, maybe that will open the floodgates to cracking open some of these other things that have become lost in history based on when institutions were created. Too optimistic? No, from your lips to um, Madam God's ears. <laughs> um, and so just, just one further question on this loss and damage fund, because you made the point that um, there's no money in it yet. The hundred billion has been so it doesn't painful. exist yet. Tom. Doesn't exist yet, right? It's a commitment to open right. bank account, right? It's a future truth. That's a what future I've heard truth. Um, this hundred billion has become obviously totemic, and this money was agreed in Copenhagen, and it's never really been delivered in the way that we would imagine it. The fear around the loss and damage is that we're now going to go down the same rabbit hole, that we're going to spend years wrangling about how much money does it really get delivered? Is it public money? So this is not the end of the loss and damage argument. This is really the starting gun of it becoming yeah. much more granular, correct? Yes, exactly. And and you might have noticed that the decision calls for the creation of a committee. Uh, and I, I need not say <laughs> anything else, right? That's it. That's it. Oh, we're going to be fine. To be in a charge committee. of this process. Great. We, we will be fine, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, many good things have come out of committees. Uh, is there <laughs> another is way true? to start? Is there another way to start? No, there isn't. You're right. Good. Yeah. Thank you for correcting us. Okay. So loss and damage, uh, not resolved, but at least named the issues. And God bless them, right? I mean, this is an amazing breakthrough. Journey Develop of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Developing Tom. countries held together, push this through. It's a, it's a big deal. Interestingly, there was a moment, and if Jennifer Morgan does come on, we can ask this ourselves, where it looked like this was going to be a quid pro quo for more ambition from developing countries, the creation of this fund, but that didn't turn out to be where we got to in the end. So um, that's that's interesting that that happened that way. Yeah. No, and, and thank you for repeating, Tom, how difficult this is, right? It's very easy to stand outside of these processes and underestimate the effort. I mean, the heavy, the political heavy lifting uh, to come to this point is just not, not, not even conceivable unless you are there every day at three o'clock in the morning yeah. uh, and, and trying to bring these texts together. So can I ask a tiny uh, question, Christiana, just for the, our listeners, that political heavy lifting at two in the morning, what does it actually look like? What is it? Can you just give like a little picture of what that's like? Well, I don't have the number here, but in a text like that, uh, there could, you know, be, I don't know, tens, hundreds of uh, of um, brackets, and the brackets represent 
issues, words, sometimes even punctuation points that one country hasn't agreed to, and hence it's in brackets. Um, and so all country, once, once you have a text on the table that is usually put forward by, in this case, by Maisa Rojas, the minister of Chile, and, um, and Jennifer Morgan, the minister of um, Germany, one developed and one developing country, and once those texts are on the table, then parties, i.e. governments, start to say, well, I object to this, and I object to the other, and da-da-da-da. And every time they object, you have to put a bracket around it. And so in the end, you have a text full of brackets. Um, and then the, the magic and the science of it is how do you lift those brackets in a balanced way so that both developing and developed countries feel that their interests are at least minimally represented and that it's not overweighted in the direction of one or the other groupings of countries. And that's done in a public and, debate and it's also done with private lobbying or how does, just my final question, how does that, how does it, how I, does it get I, done? I, I wouldn't say lobbying uh, because lobbying I think is associated in all of our minds with private sector lobbying governments. Um, so I think in this case it is negotiations and yes, it is done in, in the room that is negotiating this text, and there are many rooms that are operating at the same time, so in the room that is negotiating this. But it's also very much done between the two presiding ministers, in this case, Misa and Jennifer, um, who then call in countries where they think that they're having a problem with a country and go like, look, you know, you have objected to X, Y, Z. Um, what do you need in order to lift these brackets? And so there, there's a lot of bilateral work that needs to be done, and that's done very much in confidence. Um, and then the other piece is what is done in the open um, in either formal or informal um, meetings. Thank you. Just just because you asked for a picture and the magic of having an iPhone, I remember when we were in Lima and Christiana was going through this process of like consulting with different governments and trying to work out, and then she came into my office at 3 o'clock in the morning and just sat on the floor and had a little nap for about 10 minutes. So this is also the physical perspective of what this looks like. Maybe I'll maybe I'll tweet this out for listeners to have a sense of what this actually looks like in practice. <laughs> right. Okay. So Indeed. on from loss and damage. Um, 1.5 and overall ambition. There were some interesting things that happened in this as well. And if you look at some of the reports, the best anyone can sort of say is that there was no backsliding in Sharm, which is not really the sort of clarion call for global ambition that we would hope for. 1.5 did end up in the text, but there was also some other interesting sort of phraseology in there. Um, there was a piece of the text that contains a provision to boost low emissions energy rather than renewable energy. So that's being interpreted in a lot of interesting ways. Does that mean gas? Does that mean to open a door to other kinds of fossil fuel production where we remove the emissions? With what do we think? CCS. Yeah. Well, what, what do we think about this? I mean, this must have been lobbying by petro, petro states like Saudi Arabia and others that got this in, I'm assuming. Again, you use the word lobbying. <laughs> I did it deliberately. <laughs> Oh, I think this is lobbying. <laughs> Definitely lobbying. <laughs> lobbying equals dollars, and there's a lot of it's, money in fossil it's fuels. It's not good, so. is it? That's not good news. Low emissions. No. I mean, that, no. Yeah. No, that that really is a backsliding. Um, and the the 1.5 and the treatment of fossil fuels are definitely, obviously, go hand in hand. So the fact that there was not a clear um, line being drawn on the on the top, so to speak, of 1.5 as being the maximum ceiling is, is very disappointing. 
very, very disappointing. And yes, there was a lot of pressure, as has been reported widely in the press, from 600 representatives of the fossil fuel industry who were there. Um, and, and, and they would have lobbied, for sure. Um, but on the other side, I'm really wondering, what do you to make of I of what I see as a surprising positioning of India this year. Because some listeners, those who are COP nerds, sorry about that if you are, um, may remember that last year at COP26 when Alex Sharma was trying to gavel down that agreement in Glasgow, it was India that came and said we will not agree to phase out of coal, we need to water that text down to phase down of coal. Um, And they were pretty adamant, and they finally got that watered-down text. Now, lo and behold, here we are 12 months later, and who is now trying to put all kinds of alliances together and, and exert political pressure to expand that language from last year and say not just phase down of coal, but of all fossil fuels. You guessed it, India. I mean, what on earth is going on there? Now, also fantastically supported by Australia, because we have a new government in Australia, by Canada, by the United States, they did not get that text agreed But I think it's a really interesting, A, change of hearts, minds of India. But honestly, I I have not been able to understand that and remains a little mystery that I want to noodle into, go down that rabbit hole to understand what happened there. Is it a change of hearts or do they just see that as being consistent with the phase down of coal? Are they actually protecting that? It could go either way, right? Either they're protecting um, the demise of coal or the demise of the others versus the demise of coal, or they have had a change of hearts and they're looking at um, demand destruction of all fossil fuels. I, I don't really know. It remains a big question mark for me. I think it's not but, mysterious, um, Christiana. First of all, you, well, nobody wants okay. to make Alok Sharma nearly cry, and so India nearly did. So that, that's that's like this repentance, I think, in there somewhere. But in all seriousness, um, <laughs> there's a lot of coal going into Indian power stations, uh, but there isn't really uh, anything intrinsically in the national interest of India about gas and oil. So, yeah, phasing them out is no problem. Yeah, I, I sadly agree with your analysis, Paul. I mean, I think it's, you know, how do you outrun a polar bear? You don't have to outrun a polar bear. You just have to be faster than the next person behind you. I think what they're trying to do actually is make it seem that by toxifying other fossil fuels, they bring coal back into the mix rather than having it isolated as a particular fuel that gets targeted individually. So I think they're trying to broaden it to put pressure on everyone else rather than just on themselves. Yes, Court of global um, public opinion. Yes, I do agree with that interpretation, Tom, that what India is trying to do here is to fossilize um, oil and gas, which may not be a bad thing, because let's remember that particularly gas has been trying to defossilize itself mm. uh, and, and you know, put themselves there as the uh, fuel of transition forever and ever and ever, expanding uh, the elasticity of that time horizon. Um, and so f- I, I just think it's still very interesting that India chose to uh, to wrap its arms around all fossil fuels. Yes, they're wanting to perhaps 
minimize the uh, the effect of coal, but in so doing, they're fossilizing the other ones, which is maybe not a bad thing. So, so let's see what happens there. That's sort of the beginning of a little uh, a little group of, uh, of of little rebels that are taking a surprising position. Let's see what happens with them if they actually formalize that alliance. Um, yeah, let's see. We love a rebel now, alliance. Now, um, just moving on from this, because I know we don't have endless time to do this podcast, unfortunately. We have a brilliant interview to take you to. But um, there's also been an interesting amount of commentary, uh, some of it from you and me, Christiana and the FT, but lots of others, um, saying that cops, now are you ready for this phrasing, are no longer fit for purpose. Oh, my gosh. If I hear that one more time. <laughs> yes. Honestly, honestly. Um, so I, as, as both of you know, by now, that is one of my pet peeves because of the following. What is the purpose of something called a conference of the parties? It's not called a climate change convention. It's not called, you know, a climate change conference. It, no, it is called conference of the parties. Which is what COP stands for, of course. That is what COP stands for. So the purpose of a COP is to actually bring parties, who are parties to a convention in this case, to the Paris Agreement as well, bring them around the table for them to negotiate um, details that have not been negotiated before. Okay. So I think when people say that the COP is no longer fit for purpose, What they actually mean is that the purpose has shifted Hmm. because, by and large, the negotiation and the agreement that was necessary on the part of governments was substantially delivered in Paris with many details, such as loss and damage, for example, um, still to to be worked out. But I think there is broad consensus that the whole purpose of these yearly meetings, I'm not going to call them a cop, yearly meetings is actually to move from negotiation to implementation. And that is what this cop has not substantially delivered. And so it's not about changing the cop because that is actually internationally recognized. Um, And, you know, according to international law, uh, cops are there for the parties, for the governments. What we need to do is to understand that because the purpose has shifted, therefore we have to shift this. And it will, if I mean, if the lawyers get their way, it wouldn't be called a cop anymore. It would be called something different um, because it wouldn't be a cop anymore. It has to include private sector because the private sector is now actually uh, in the uh, in in the driver's seat, and they have the capacity to implement much more than governments do. So yeah, so it's not that it's not fit for purpose. It's that we have to understand the purpose has changed, purpose and has then, changed, yeah. and then change. You know how we come together for it. So. I, you know, according to the very simple logic that form always follows function. So let's first understand that the function has changed and then we can change the form to, to service the new function. Mm. And Paul, I mean, just to ask you about that, because Christiane's made a very clear point there that it's really the private sector that now needs to drive this transformation. Um, 
you are, you know, you've been involved in private sector leadership on climate change for a very long time. Do you think the COPs are useful for the private sector to elevate action? Or do you feel like we haven't yet? Because I mean, Nigel Topping and, and others have made tremendous strides in trying to integrate private sector action into the COP. And so we shouldn't ignore the fact that COPs are changing anyway, in many ways. Um, however, that process hasn't yet completed. What's your sense of whether the private sector gets what it needs from COPs to keep it moving forward and transforming as it needs to? Look, it's so simple. Um, as Christiana says, the private sector is required to make this happen and they can and they, I think most of them want to and they'll do it very quickly and Earth will be saved. But if you think of it as a game... If you, you heard think it, of it here as, first. If you think of it as a game, the government... A game? Left, yeah, well, give me a sec... Okay, I'm, I'm going to breathe. I'm, I'm going to breathe. <laughs> Carry on. If you think of it as a game, the government's the referee. The government sets the rules. So if the goal says, you know, five degrees end of earth, then all the players will kick the ball into that goal. But if the referee draws the goal as net zero by 2040, all the players will kick the ball into that goal and will get down to net zero by 2040. So the point being... <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, what happened a long time ago is that the players sort of took control of the referee. And what we need to do through the COP is we need to reestablish the referee as the one that makes the rules that gets the players to play the game whereby we all win. And so, look, it sounds a little bit like I'm being poetic. I don't mean to, but I think the COP should be a sort of multi-level, multi-dimensional thinking and speaking chamber. You know, they're in the diary of the whole world now, right? And... It could be a conceptual space for a sort of new kind of uh, emerging, unprecedented empowerment. I think we need artists yeah. to reimagine it. Agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually think that what we're seeing is that we're playing two different games with two different referees. And so you have the game, and I, I'm sorry, it, it is not meant out of any disrespect because this is absolutely not a game. Most but you serious have one game field. in the world. Yeah, the most serious game in the world. You have one field that is occupied by governments. That is the COP field. Then you have in parallel another field that is occupied by everyone who's not a national government, by subnational governments, by institutions, by scientists, by um, finance people, by corporations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and the two fields are actually in, in action side by side as opposed to informing each other of speed and scale. That is the problem that I have, that these are two different realities. One is the real economy reality, which is on the field, not officially, I mean, it is sort of, but not really officially covered by the cop. And the other is the reality, the political reality that is much slower. And I think to throw, you know, rotten tomatoes at the cop, at the field that is operated by national governments um, is not quite very realistic because we all know that politics and policy are very, very slow. I am actually more interested in those decisions that have been taken on taken on, in that field. How are they affecting the other field and the advances in the field that is occupied by the non-national governments um, all of that progress, how does that fertilize then further ambitious decisions on the other side? And so I think if we were able to bring down the wall between those two fields, we would actually be able to move quicker, faster. 
Yeah. And and again, we should acknowledge that a lot of progress in that direction has been made, right? I mean, the action agenda is now astonishing along the outsides of, of where the COP happens and the breakthrough agenda and all of these commitments. It was really impressive, I have to say. I mean, in many ways, I felt this was the first COP where the non-state actor, the action area, almost felt like the heart of it. And the negotiations, it may have been sort of an accident of design. Was Wasn't sort of that to- true in Glasgow also, though, Tom? Well, I mean, yes, but there was also, yeah, there was a sort of, there was the necessity of finalizing the rule book. There were a whole bunch of negotiation things yeah. that kind of felt very uh, on a continuum from the COP. This felt, I felt, I felt that this was the first post, and, and I don't mean to downplay the loss and damage breakthrough or anything like that. I felt it was the p- first post-negotiation COP and the first COP of implementation, which is what it had to be. Now, I did also feel like it was in a slightly confused area where it had left one form and hadn't yet settled on its new form. And I think that's the interesting challenge that's ahead of us. So over the course of the next year, we will see the global stock take that will tell us at some point next year what we all know, which is that we are not implementing the Paris Agreement as we need to. And I think that is a moment to say, are these annual meetings that are the main way in which the world tries to get on top of this issue, solving the problem we now have in front of us? And I think that is a chance for evolution to try to put our arms around a form that solves our problem. And I think an interesting thought experiment, not for now, is if COPs didn't exist and we were trying to design them, how would we design them right now? What what would the most fit-for-purpose formula be to try to solve the problem in front of us in 2022. Exactly. But I, yeah. can I give one tiny example of something that I think is just indicative of the kind of excitement? Um, um, it's actually, it was an announcement uh, Al Gore made about climate trace. Yes, now, that I was mean, great. This particular initiative is harnessing 300 satellites, right? They've got eyes yes. on 80,000 facilities around the world that they can uh, evaluate the outputs um, from 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 satellites, and then they can double check that using machine learning. And what I find so exciting is is uh, when I heard him talking about it, he was talking about actually you can start buying steel from lower energy steel suppliers and creating yeah. marketplaces. I know that you've talked about that with the pledge, and I just think uh, that the last thing I'll leave leave to Al Gore yes, saying awesome breakthrough. The, the third re- industrial revolution, he said would have the scale of the uh, industrial revolution but the speed of the digital revolution that's very mm. exciting awesome yeah that was a great great breakthrough and, and kudos to him he's been working on this for a long time yes he has now we have a very exciting guest for you this week um rory stewart is wait um, wait 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 before we yes, go there go ahead we have to let our listeners know that this time although they have been very very silent <laughs> very mice quiet here very quiet. We actually have a live audience in the studio. Very avid the Costa Rican studio. To the, yeah. the Costa Rican, the Costa Rican studio. studio. Yes, that has attracted you know two uh, migratory birds from Washington D.C. coming down here. And um, no, my very good friends Peggy and Bob Bohr are here uh, for thank what for U.S. Thanksgiving, although Costa Rica doesn't do Thanksgiving. But we are delighted because we're very, very old friends. No, we're very good friends of many years. We're not old friends. <laughs> we're very good friends of many years. Um, and they are avid listeners, and they have been here in the studio live. So would you like to say hello? we got to say hello. There we go. There we go. Hi. Okay, so anything else before we move to the interview? 
All right. So Rory Stewart is a remarkable human being. And um, you probably know that already, because if you found us at Outrage and Optimism, you probably know the rest is politics. Uh, he has had a long career as a soldier. Um, he then left the army and spent a couple of years walking across Afghanistan and speaking to people and getting to know the people there and what they felt about the evolution of governance. He's worked as a civil servant in the UK. He then became an MP. He became Minister of International Development. He ran for the leadership campaign of the Conservative Party against Boris Johnson. And 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 when he didn't win that, um, he moved on and has done many other things, including launching the podcast, The Rest is Politics. And if you haven't listened to it, you probably have, because it's one of the biggest podcasts in the world. What's but if fascinating you haven't, please about do. It, yeah. Please do. Um, so he... Um, it's really good. It's launched, uh, it's run by Rory, a former Conservative minister, together with Alistair Campbell, the former head of communications for New Labour under Tony Blair. And it's what I love about their podcast is they model how to have a conversation where you disagree with somebody, but you do it in a constructive way. And it's made a big difference to the political discourse in the UK, the idea that you don't have to agree with someone to have a productive and useful conversation with them. So listen to the rest is politics. But here is Rory Stewart. He lives in Amman, Jordan. And uh, as part of the the interview, you hear the call to prayer from the local mosque to where he lives. So listen out to that. Uh, I grew up partly in the Middle East and the call to prayer still feels like home to me. So I always love hearing that. Um, so here is Rory Stewart. We'll be back afterwards. So Rory Stewart, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to welcome you to the podcast. We are huge fans of your remarkable podcast with Alistair Campbell. The rest is politics. Um, I'm sure everybody, if you know us, you know them as well. Um, but it's a delight to have you here. Thank you for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. Um, I'd like to kick off by just asking you. So people often comment on the diversity of my life experience. I've been a Buddhist monk, a Greenwood chairmaker, a political strategist for multilateral treaties, but I am a child in this compared to the, the polymath that you are, having been a tutor to princes, a soldier, an author, a wanderer, a politician, a minister, a podcaster, and so much more. And I'd love to just start out by asking you, as you cast your mind across this range of your experience, what's the golden thread in terms of qualities or values that ties it back to you? How do these pieces connect? And how do you make sense of them in the stories that you tell about yourself? Goodness, it's a, a very, very grand question. And I, I must say, I'm, I wish I'd been a Buddhist monk. That would have been a more impressive. I don't know. Thing. I need to ask you why you're not still a Buddhist monk. That sounds to be a thing which, which you should be heading, not moving away from. Um, one of the things that I care about in life is trying to get in touch with ground reality, which sounds a slightly pompous jargon way of expressing uh, an anxiety I always have, which is that government of different sorts, and I've been in government really in and out for 30 years, is addicted to jargon, to abstraction, to theory. And that theory is often dangerously blind to what you encounter when you get into the field. And getting into the field yeah. in my life can mean almost anything. That could mean, as a prison minister, spending a day with a prison officer walking around a prison. It could mean in Afghanistan, walking across Afghanistan. It could mean in my constituency, walking through the constituency. Or it could mean in international development, being very focused on visiting remote projects in rural areas. But it's about the fight against the illusions of theory, I think. Hmm. 
That's very interesting. So in each of these different scenarios, you try to kind of cut through the structures and the thinking and the theory that sits on top of trying to get at what lies underneath, which is the fundamental reality. You'd be quite a good Buddhist monk with that theory, with that approach to life, by the way. It's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and can I ask, um, given that you say, you know, you spent 30 years in government in one way or the other, some of it in politics and some of it as a civil servant, do you think that you can drive more change inside politics or on the outside? Because you've got a unique perspective on that. I, I feel I can drive more change on the outside. I think that um, government systems are astonishingly difficult to change. Hmm. Um, it, 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 the, the whole government system is set up to allow you to either pull a very, very big lever and shift an entire aircraft carrier 180 degrees or have almost no influence at all. Hmm. And actually the secret of most successful things in life is being able to respond flexibly with smaller changes to adjust to the environment around you. And that you can do in an NGO very easily. You have a smaller team, you can be much more nimble. But government is extraordinary. I mean, the Africa strategy that I set I guess, in 2017, was only beginning to get underway towards the end of 2018. Got a bit of head of steam up by sort of 2020, and then is sort of being dismantled now in 2022. But it, it's, a, it's a sort of odd sense that you try to bring these reforms. I suppose another example would be if you look at somebody, a controversial figure like Michael Gove, who was the British Education Secretary, he tries to bring reforms into education, but it's very difficult 12 years later to really sense what that meant hmm. and how that's really worked its way through curricula, teachers, students, results. Have the way that we've been educated, has it really changed or hasn't it? Hmm. So do you think in given that in government, I mean, because we've also seen these quite dramatic changes that have been quite detrimental to our our quality of life. I mean, Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting's mini budget, Brexit itself, other things, it's almost easier to chuck rocks and take it in the wrong direction than it is to build and construct the platform that improves our lives. Yes, because most of the things that really matter are not about the what, but the how. In other words, they're not fundamentally concerned with the big idea. They're concerned with the way in which things are implemented. Hmm. For me, for example, to, to kind of take a very simple example, when I was the minister responsible for all the prisons in England and Wales, the fundamental question isn't, should prisons be safe places where you don't get raped and murdered and uh, attacked? The, the question was, how do you make them safe? And that is much more difficult because that's about management. That's about dealing with thousands of prison officers. It's about thinking about gate security, it's about thinking about relationships with prisoners, it's about thinking about how governors do their jobs, governors of prisons do their jobs and set their particular priorities. Um, it's the how of government where the problem is. And I, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about environmental projects or whether you're talking about rolling out broadband or whether you're talking about foreign policy in Africa. What holds us back is not the big idea. What holds us back is having people with the knowledge, the experience, the, the right attitude to be able to deliver projects effectively. Yeah. Wow, that's a, such a good description of where we are on climate as well, right? Because we've had 
these big treaties on climate for more than 10 years with grand things in the text like 1.5 and other objectives, but it's not enough to actually get us moving forward. So I'd like to turn to the COP now, but just before I do, one thing that struck me from a sort of almost philosophical level that resonates with what you just said is in terms of different models of how we change the world that I think we're struggling with in climate, you can almost see this as a dichotomy between those who are trying to drive momentum and those who insist on perfection. So you can say that in an ideal world, both of those are needed. But what I've sometimes seen in social movements and environmental movements is that they end up fighting each other. There are those that say we should just get going and as we move further forward, we'll build momentum and then we'll improve the direction we're heading in. And there are those who say we need to demand everything and anything less than that is a betrayal. And those two philosophies are sort of fighting each other in the climate world and almost cancelling each other out. What would, would you recognise that description of the world? Yeah, yeah Absolutely. I think that that's entirely true. And I think there is a, a level of, I mean, it, it goes to the heart of different types of philosophy. I mean, I obviously come from a center-right tradition. I come from a conservative tradition that tends to emphasize pragmatism and evolution rather than radical idealism. Hmm. And I often feel, obviously, in my, my whole life that sometimes very radical, aggressive ideas are um, get in the way of progress. They they create a sort of vision of perfection and optimism, which is pretty close to despair because yeah. it, it re returns to where we began, which is the question of engagement with reality. It's as though people don't want to talk about trade-offs, don't want to talk about power, don't want to talk about sacrifices, don't want to talk about difficult yeah, difficult choices between lesser evils. Hmm. Um, and and if you are not prepared to get into that conversation, you can feel good about yourself and feel very pious um, and feel that the whole world is refusing to listen to your great prophetic vision, but you're unlikely to change anyone's life. You You have the sort of delight of purity yeah. without impact. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, thank you. That's 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 such a good description of where we are on climate. So so to just turn now to the COP that has just concluded in Sham, and I'd just like to ask you a couple of questions about the UK politics and then we'll get into loss and damage, which I think is a very interesting topic area for you. Um, one thing that happened at the beginning of the negotiations, and I have this on good authority from people inside the government, is that the U the Prime Minister turned up having actually burned through a chunk of the climate finance money that had been promised last year. Last year, 11.6 billion pounds was promised over three years in climate finance in Glasgow. And what happened was some of that money, which was originally designated as overseas development aid, had ended up being redesignated and spent instead on Ukrainians coming to the UK. So the strategy of the prime minister was to turn up at the COP and reaffirm the number, but not reaffirm the time frame. Now, he was asked, because this leaked, pointed questions by activists and journalists over the course of a couple of days. And while he started out by sort of trying to demur on the time frame, in the end, he reconfirmed the three years, which was an interesting sort of turnaround. So I'd just like to ask, as a former development secretary responsible for the overseas development aid budget, 
How do you respond to the way in which that money is now being used more politically than maybe it was in the time when you were in office? Yes, you're right. I mean, when I was um, the Secretary of State for the Department for International Development, we were in a very strange situation because the department was preserved by law. It was set up as a legally independent body with its own budget, which was supposed to be 0.7% of uh, the British economy was supposed to be spent on overseas development, and nobody could touch our money. Every time anybody tried to borrow a bit of our money, we had this law to fall back on. And, and that both meant that as the International Development Secretary, I was in a very luxurious position. I could literally say, I'm going to put $300 million into Ethiopia, or we're going to double the spend on climate and the environment. And nobody else in the rest of the government had anything to say about it. The Treasury couldn't really say anything because it was a, a budget that was ring-fenced for us. That changed, and it changed probably because, in the end, it was difficult to sustain in a uh, a world of tight budgets an idea that there can ever be any budget that is completely apolitical, that's completely ring-fenced, and that can't be traded against anything else. Hmm. And the problem is that we've now gone to the other extreme. I mean, as usual in government, the, the pendulum doesn't sort of swing to the middle shifts to the other extreme. So what actually has now happened is that the aid budget's been cut from 0.7 to 0.5 theoretically, but in practice, because a lot of the money's been pre-committed and as you say, being spent on Ukrainian refugees and being spent in Ukraine itself, um, for the extreme poor, which was the focus of our department's work, the money has dropped by much more than half in many of the African countries in which I work. Which which must look disastrous on the ground, which you are, which you witness in a yeah, significant. It's very way. very sad. It's yeah. very sad. It's very sad for the extreme poor, obviously, because it means that they're not getting the support they should. And of course, Africa is struggling in general, struggling because of climate change, struggling because of the legacy of COVID, struggling because of the rising prices, partly to do with the Ukraine war. But it also has a profound effect on Britain's international influence because Britain suddenly is no longer able to present itself as um, you know, a, a thoughtful development partner. And it, it has consequences for many other things. I mean, it means that countries such as China and Russia have more influence in Africa because countries like Britain are retreating. And a lot of this um, is, uh, should be troubling for, yeah. for citizens of Britain. Yeah. Um- one other thing that came out of Sham was this breakthrough on loss and damage. And as you know, this has been negotiated for a long time at the UN. And in the end, emerging economies, developing countries held together and insisted that a fund is finally created. However, many of the most difficult questions have been kicked forward, right? So there's been a fund for loss and damage created, but there's no money in it yet. And there's an interesting question over who puts money in and then also who gets to take money out. Um, so I just, I don't know if you have sort of views on how that should now work. For the first time, of course, the Germans are saying China should be putting money in rather than being at the other end of the funnel and taking money out. Where do you think we've come to with all of that now? Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I, I think the, the idea that the polluters should pay makes sense. And there's no doubt at all that the developed world and China have caused an enormous amount of the problem. And that 
the poorest countries in the world, countries like Somalia, which are experiencing the most extreme impacts of climate change, have themselves contributed nothing to that climate change because there are no emissions coming out. So philosophically, that all makes sense. I, I think the key point, though, is how much money can be raised and what that money is then spent on rather than the question of whether how that's framed. And there are many different, these are basically rhetorical arguments. There are many mm. different moral and political arguments you can make for why the money should be transferred and who it should be transferred to. But fundamentally, almost regardless of who's responsible, the victims of it are the poorest people in the world. Yeah. And therefore, I would like to see much, much more support given directly to the poorest people in the world mm. so that they are more resilient in the face of extreme weather events. And mm. I, you know, I've just been in Kalife in eastern Kenya, and it's horrifying. It's horrifying seeing the dead livestock. It's horrifying seeing the livestock that are not yet dead being led two, three hours from villages to try to pick a few leaves off a thorn bush to try to keep alive. Mm. And I'm very troubled about, not just about you know, the wealthy countries and whether they're going to give the money. I'm also worried about what the developing countries will do with the money if they get it, because they may well not be providing it to help the very poorest. Mm. So I, let's get into Give Directly in just a sec, because I know you've taken a role there and it's amazing what's being achieved through Give Directly. And it'd be great for listeners to understand that more. Just one more question on loss and damage before we do. One of the things that I was aware of at the COP is that there were Republican Party strategists from the US there. And they could sort of barely contain their glee at the idea of a loss and damage fund and that they could weaponize this principle going into the next US election saying Biden's taking money from hardworking American taxpayers in Wyoming and giving it to, to, to other people in other parts of the world. And, and you can see it's so easy to use that as a political tool, which limits the space available in liberal democracies to do what we know is needed, which is global solidarity in the face of a unjust issue like climate change but and you've talked and and spoken a lot about this but the shift away from a sense of internationalism is limiting the political space what's the what's the thread there by which democracies can still make the case for global solidarity in in our current politics yeah well i think you i mean if you're spending taxpayers money you have fundamentally to bring taxpayers along with you and that means you need to communicate what you're spending their money on in a way that is appealing, emotionally, morally. And that involves a certain amount of uh, psychology. And there may be voters who like the idea that they're putting, uh, providing money out of guilt. But that doesn't seem to me to be the majority of voters in Europe or the United States. The majority of voters in the Europe or the United States would prefer to feel that they're providing assistance to the developing world out of a sense of generosity hmm. rather than compulsion. Now, that may be offensive to, as you say, the victims of climate change or the victims of global capitalist structures. They may well, the recipients may prefer to feel that they're not getting the money as charity, they're getting the money as their right. But the, the problem is, how do you motivate the giver? Hmm. not how do you uh, placate the, the recipient. And I think it is important in doing this to keep an optimistic, positive story going. And that is partly about a fundamental idea that a dollar in the United States or Britain 
is worth $100 in the developing world, that a small contribution can make an incredible difference mm. to somebody else's life. And I think that's much more likely to motivate people than making them feel uh, that they're having to hand the money over out of shame or guilt. Otherwise, it will get caught up in many other types of movement, which are also weaponized in the culture wars. Yeah. It will sound to people as though this is, uh, you know, this is replaying arguments about decolonization or slavery or some other form of uh, repair, retribution hmm. for historic crimes, which I think is something that appeals to a part of the electorate. I don't know how much of it, but maybe 10, 20% of people think in that way, but I don't think it's something that is likely to sustain a broad coalition of um, generous contributions going forward. Yeah. Um, but speaking of generous contributions, you you have t recently taken on the role as president of Give Directly. And I have to say, I've known a little bit about Give Directly, but as part of preparing for talking to you, I've looked into it. And it's kind of remarkable, the impact and the scale that that's gotten to. So maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about that, because that really feels like that could be a really powerful tool at this moment when we need to show global solidarity. Well, thank you. So Give Directly is a very, very simple idea. The idea is that people uh, who can afford it, which generally means people in Europe, United States, Australia, give money directly to the poorest people in the world. And at the heart of it is an idea of dignity. The idea is that instead of going, as it were, to a village in Uganda or Malawi or Rwanda and telling people what to do with the money, which is often what a lot of nonprofit NGO work feels like. It often feels as though you're turning up and saying, you're not feeding yourselves properly, you're not educated, you're not healthy, you're not treating your women correctly, or whatever the, the narrative is. This is instead saying, we trust you, we respect you, we believe in you, and here is uh, cash, unconditional cash, and we trust somebody who is in extreme poverty to know better how to spend that money than I as a foreigner do. And the results are really remarkable because, of course, it's very efficient because there aren't lots of middle, middle people, middle men, middle women between the donor and the recipient. The money goes directly to someone's telephone, so it avoids the problems of potentially corrupt governments and others getting their hands on the money along the way. And the money then, we find, is usually spent in an extraordinarily rapid transformatory fashion. So people will very, very quickly invest in a solar panel, repair their house, buy a cow, plant new crops, invest in a small business, get their children back into school. And all of that for a lump sum, which could be $550 to an individual. And $550, of course, is a significant amount of money to somebody in the West. But the point is, it is worth a hundred times more to yeah. somebody. It's a life-changing amount of money to someone else. Yeah. yeah, That's amazing. And I mean, what that shows is like how the utilization of trust, which has been so, ab so absent sometimes in international development, can actually elevate impact. Are you seeing any signs that, because it's amazing to focus this on individuals, are institutions and governments picking up on this model as a way to work as well? beginning to you're, okay. you're beginning to see a little bit more but still it's very very small i mean if the entire international development spend in the world less than two percent currently goes into cash programs and mm. that's very surprising because we've now got over 300 academic papers demonstrating the impact of cash showing that cash can outperform nutrition programs on nutrition 
on bone density and stunting, that cash can do extraordinary things for education enrollment, for youth employment. We're looking at some very interesting programs at the moment on climate and the environment and the way in which we can combine cash programming with uh, projects for reforestation or projects for conservation. And I think it is not just um, incredibly powerful, it's also intensely scalable and replicable. I mean, yeah. it, it, one of the problems often with international development is you can have somebody running a very, very good clinic in northeast Nigeria. But if you said to them, can you now roll out 100,000 of these? They'd say, no, of course not. Right? I mean, the point is I've got a really good team and I'm running a really good individual clinic. But cash can be replicated. Hmm. And actually cash, I believe, is central if we actually want to end extreme poverty in our lifetime. It's mm. probably the only intervention which has the chance of really achieving these goals that the UN keeps setting about ending extreme poverty. But it also, given what we're talking about, is vital for giving these poor communities the resilience to deal with climate change. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think one of the things I keep hearing on international development circles is how quickly the world is changing from a from a from a climatic and harvest point of view particularly in equatorial places like africa and it's very difficult for these programs to respond to changing scenarios so i mean is that do you see that cash i mean people will respond very quickly to their scenarios if they've got flexibility and the adaptive opportunity to do so so that actually could become even more powerful in the scenario of a rapidly changing world. Do you think that's the case? Yes, ab yeah. absolutely. And yeah. I, I would like to see a great deal of the theoretically 100 billion that's been committed going into cash programming. Yeah. I think it would be wonderful for um, countries that are struggling with the impacts of droughts and climate change, particularly in Africa, hmm. to think about doing cash transfers to every single individual in extreme poverty, because that would then give them the resilience to make their way through you know, what we're now seeing in Somalia, which is the fourth year of drought, and Sahel, some areas, the sixth year of drought, the sort of crushing impact, but not just drought. You know, in Uganda, we're working on people suffering from extreme landslides, in Mozambique from flooding. And in every case, cash is what allows you to respond very nibbly to, if you look at a really extreme event like a flood, it allows you to decide what your priorities are. Do you need a tent? Do you need food? Rather than what often happens, which is the international community sort of sends a tent or right. sends food from Kansas, and then the individual has to sell that thing to get the cash to buy what they actually need. Right. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, and do you see part of your role as both trying to drive individual donations and also speaking to donor governments to help them understand this? Very much, okay. very much. So yeah. I'm on my way to Washington. Okay. I'm going to try hard to get USAID and the World Bank to take this more seriously, talking to the World Bank, potentially about working together Amazing. in places like Malawi. Yeah. Um, but yes, it is about trying to, to shift the way okay. the international community thinks about it. Because there's $160 billion a year of international development assistance, yes. which could be going into cash and isn't. Yeah. Amazing. Well, before this interview, I went on your website and made a small donation just to see how the process worked. And it's incredibly easy. So everyone listening to this should do it. It's the transaction cost is small. And as you said, a small amount of money makes a big difference. Rory, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I have to ask you one more question before I let you go, which we ask all of our guests on this podcast, which is um, sitting where you do now, we're speaking to you and Aman Jordan, you have an amazing perspective 
on the world, given your vast diversity of backgrounds and also what you see around the world. Um, could you please tell us one thing that gets you outraged and one thing that makes you feel optimistic? So I think one thing that makes me outraged is the fact that there is such extreme destitution and poverty still in the world. And that for about 0.1% of global GDP, we could effectively end it. So I think that's what outrages me. Yeah. And I think the way to do that, obviously, as I keep saying, is through much bigger cash programming. And, um, something that makes me optimistic. Yeah, I suppose what makes me optimistic is the sense that throughout history, we have adapted remarkably to the most unbelievable crises and shifts in technology. Now, I sometimes get scared about the way in which social media is powering populism, but then I reflect on how well we adapted to the arrival of print during the wars of religion or mm. radio and television and the horrors of the Second, Second World War and then for the horrors of the 20th century in general. And I, yeah, I, I do remain fundamentally optimistic about humans. Mm. Fabulous. Rory Stewart, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you very much for joining us. And um, everyone should donate to Give Directly. And of course, I'm sure you already listen to The Rest is Politics. So thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. So I have to say, I loved talking to Rory Stewart. I've long had enormous amounts of admiration for him. And I was sorry you two couldn't join, but it was a sort of unique experience having a one-on-one -on -one interview. And, 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 and that was great too. And it was lovely to talk to him. What did you both, you both heard the conversation. What did you feel about it? So I was, I was really deeply struck by one thing he said, and it kind of blew my mind. Um, he he called his kind of opponents um, kind of ideological people, and he said that they have the delight of purity but without impact. And then I it triggered something, and I went off and I checked um, some comments from George Monbiot, who's recently won an Orwell Prize for saying the exact opposite. And so I was really struck by that particular tension about the sort of pragmatic centre-right and the uh, idealistic, if that's the word, maybe, maybe idealistic is the wrong word. I'm sure Monbiot, if he was here, would say the, the pragmatic uh, left. And um, Christiana Figueres once said, do you want to be righteous or do you want to be helpful? And I like to quote her when it pops up in the chat, actually. When, it, when you talking. feel it's helpful to you in the discussion, exactly. So. <laughs> but I mean, but, 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 but very specifically, I think there are some of these other tensions. It's like me thinking about the tension between kind of a free market and then, uh, you know, free politics. Um, we're struck with these, these paradoxical tensions and we've got to reconcile them because I'm just feeling that that's the kind of Gordian knot we've got to cut yeah, I completely agree with that. And I and I love that this is the piece we've picked up on because it's fast becoming uh, the topic that I think is, and Christiana, you and I have talked about this a lot, the topic that I think we have to find a way to transcend. So I see the world now um, as sort of splitting, as, we, as the impacts of climate change get worse and as this sort of breathless anxiety takes over us, then people are concluding that what we need to do now is double down on whatever we were doing before. So that means that if you were insisting on urgent change before you're even more insistent on it and if you were insisting on 
you know, getting on the path and getting moving and then accelerating as you go, then you're continuing to insist on that. And we're sort of moving away in different directions. And I saw that in the COP in spades, that there were those who were saying, let's just get going and invest and get moving. And then we can build up the scale and make it perfect as we keep going. And others who are saying, unless we demand exactly what we want, then we're selling ourselves short, we're selling the future short. And those two theories of change that Christiana, you and I have called perfection and momentum or broad participation and high, you know, high integrity can sort of eat each other if the relationship mm. between them is unhealthy. And mm. both can stop the other from building momentum. And I've been doing a bit of reading on this. And what's interesting is if you look back at previous social movements, whether it's suffragettes or civil rights or colonial independence, they struggled with this too. And actually, the key was not one perfect theory of change. It's a healthy relationship between the two. Mm. You need those who speak to the middle and talk about taking steps to get us moving forward. And you need a radical flank that then demands everything we want and refuses to give up and sort of holds everybody to account. And I I think that that middle between the two is, is just contains a magic key for us as we're trying to move forward in the climate debate. And I really liked how Rory brought that forward. I think he is a very effective communicator and very keen on transformative change. But I Mm. think he's quite pragmatic on how he tries to get there, which is more about meeting people where they are, as he said himself, focusing on the how, and then moving us forward from that point of view, which Mm. I think has been very effective in his life. Just one little story from the old days um in the early days of the stonewall lobby group in the uk the we were sort of forming a kind of parliamentary lobbying organization and then there would be lesbians who would abseil into the house of lords and get on the news but maybe on sunday over lunch they might discuss who was doing what at what time even though they were entirely separate (laughs) if you see what i mean so it's the point is that it's not one thing but maybe it's one um approach that coordinates many different very extraordinary and special things that come together. But that you have trust between the approaches so they can collaborate, right? And I think one thing I would observe is in climate now, I think that trust is broken. And I think that those two sides don't trust each other to move us forward. That's really sad. Um, I thought that um, just in general, I think that Rory is playing a very pragmatic, and I mean, as I said, in the rest of politics, I also thought Give Directly is a remarkable success story. And I, as I said, I looked more into that afterwards. And I'd really encourage listeners to have a look at that. I mean, even things like landscape restoration in Africa, it turns out that giving relatively small amounts of money to individuals in places, you know, like the DRC or or Malawi or elsewhere is really effective. Because then if you own yeah. a few acres, you plant a few trees, you restore your land, you, you become wealthier yourself, but you also restore the ecosystem. So I really hope that that becomes a more recognized method of development finance, because it seems to be that there's a lot of evidence that that's now the way we need to go. Yeah. And I mean, just on that specific one, he said some amazing things, blew my mind. Like, for example, he explained why we obviously morally, but should um, support uh, people with, you know, the poorest people in the world. He said, one dollar here is worth a hundred dollars there. Think about yeah. that incredible response rate. He said for 0.1% of GDP, we could just end extreme poverty around the world. And he pointed out that if we fail to do this, um, countries that we might find more complicated geopolitically, like Russia or 
others might extend their influence in some of these countries. So I'm really, I was really moved by that logic of, of the sort of enlightened self-interest of, of us increasing our support for the most vulnerable in the world. Yeah, yeah. so true and, and, and so exacerbated when you wrap the climate context around that. It is, it is absolutely true even in the absence of climate, but once you put climate as an accelerant of all of the yeah. negative impacts, it, it is just so overwhelmingly um, correct and, 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 and honestly has, yeah, the, the positive impacts that that can have go way beyond um, anything that that we think of. So, yes, kudos to him, because here we have been talking about macro changes and about what the World Bank and the Multilateral Development Bank should be doing. Also true. And at the other end of the scale, what we as individuals can be doing for other individuals around on the other side of the planet, uh, equally as compelling. Yeah. And Clay, we'll put the links in the show notes. And I think his focus on that really speaks to his commitment to the how, right? The interesting thing is how we do these yeah. things. It's all there to be done. We all agree we don't want climate to screw our planet and destroy biodiversity and compromise the future. The interesting question is how. And I think that's been mm. really instructive. And, right. and that's where we don't agree. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's so that's where, where we, where we need to come as together. As exactly. he says yeah. very clearly, that's where yeah. we don't agree. Yeah. Anything else before we go to the music? Okay, so this has been a lot of fun. And um, um, this week we're leaving you as ever with a piece of music. Uh, kudos to the title of this song. So this is L.A. Salami. <laughs> Good Desperate... job. Good job, Clay, for choosing that one. Desperate Times, Mediocre Measures. This is the anthem of the cop in Charlotte's Shake. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little unfair. We don't mean to take away from what everyone is cheap, but this is a great song and perfectly named. So enjoy this. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 <laughs> Bye. Yeah, to our audience, our live audience. Bye, Peggy and Bob. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Hasta luego. Hello, my name's L.A. Salami, and this song is Desperate Times, Mediocre Measures, DTMM. It is a song that tackles the idea of the cyclical and corrosive nature of power structures across our societies, hierarchical structures that like all structures in our reality, are made up of and reinforced by people who find themselves, more often than not, enforcing the very corrupted elements of those structures, sometimes purely due to the fact that this can become the prime method of propping themselves up within that structure. Sitting here just sipping on the provocia, slipping deeper into a suspicion that everything is the same. Each man might have a mission to just advance his position, any fault in the decision, the competition's the game. How much kindness is left at the top though, when you have a say of a child's fate a hundred miles away? Power can only make power stop, so there seems to be a monopoly of power in every type of way. Confined in constant etymologies of thought in proportion to what is displayed Experience
It's an inherent inheritance of defense against all the questions The gift of foresight can't help but display How much can you trust men at the top though When he makes a play for a piece of land a hundred miles away What good is left when you get to the top though When you have a say of decisions made a hundred miles away Does he have mind to concede his place though When position pays in the workings of this game See this place, no, put you on the payroll and send you on your way. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. L.A. Salami. Desperate times, mediocre measures. Now, I got the credit a couple minutes ago for picking this song for the week and for the title, but all credit is due to L.A. Salami for naming the track. And by the way, if the title and the poetic lyrics of the song caught you, this is just the tip of the iceberg. His latest record, Autoline was just released one month ago. It's available on vinyl and it's streaming everywhere that you listen to music. But real quick, before I even say what my name is, two things I want you to take away with you. Number one, there's a link in the show notes to his music videos on uh, his website. And I was reading that his first love was film and it really shows because his originality and engaging film style shows up in his music videos. I mean, just the variety and originality just kind of oozes from these like six or eight music videos that are featured right there in a link that I have for you in the show notes. And I actually found myself going from video to video wondering, you know, what the next frame was gonna be. And start with things ain't changed. That's my pick of the week. And two, he has shows booked this year, actually, one's in East London tonight. So if you live near East London and it's Thursday, November 24th, you should go. And then uh, a string of shows in March across the UK, Netherlands, France, Belgium, and Germany. So you can go to lasalami.com slash live, or you can just go to the show notes. I've got a link for you there. Go see a show. Oh, man, it's just the best. It's the best. We have music on the show. Amazing artists. L.A. Salami. So, hi. My name's Clay. I'm the producer of Outrage and Optimism. Uh, this is like the end of the podcast where I just talk for a couple minutes about who was on the show, what you can look forward to in the show notes, 
and some exciting news here and there. So let's get into it. Um, shout out to Rory Stewart for coming on the show as our guest this week. You can check out the work of Give Directly in the show notes below. And I know the holiday season is upon us, so be thinking about giving generously this year to make an incredible difference in the life of someone who we share the planet with. And of course, subscribe and listen to The Rest is Politics everywhere you get your podcasts. But you're already probably subscribed. But if you're not, off chance that you're not, go subscribe. All right. Uh, Tomorrow, The Way Out is In, our sister podcast, is releasing an episode that is perfect for recovering from a COP27 uh, two-week go or just living a life in this fast-paced world. I just finished editing this episode, and it's titled The Art of Laziness. Don't just do something. Sit there. Very funny. Uh, That's a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, You can go check that out anywhere you get your podcasts. Again, that episode, really helpful to let you just sit and breathe for a second. And once you're recovered, you're returned to your full self. The very, very last thing I have for you today is that we are currently conducting a listener survey and we really want your input on how to shape the podcast. We do these every now and then to gather feedback from our community, but I really want to emphasize that this is one of the best times to speak directly to us about who you are and what you want from our show. And just a small peek behind the curtain, the feedback and information that you share with us via these listener surveys gets compiled into this report that we reference, refer to, double check back to make sure we heard you right all the time. It really is a guiding light for our podcast. So we really want to, you know what? I'm actually going to double down on this. We need to hear from you to keep this show relevant and successful and frankly, in your feed every Thursday. So can't thank you enough in advance for doing this, but go check the show notes for the link to our listener survey. Can't wait to hear from you. All right. I'm responsible for bringing veggies and hummus to Thanksgiving this year. So I need to go actually chop those up and plate that. Okay. We'll see you next Thursday. Thursday.